all a very friendly bunch of people. That's great to see. It's springtime. It's April. It's time for us to really enjoy. Woo! And you're back after last week's Easter blowout day. I'm always uh, interested to see who comes back the week after Easter. Usually everybody says, hey, we all showed up for Easter. We're taking off the next week. But Ann, I'm glad you're here. It's good to, good to see a good group this morning and uh, have you get to know one another and uh, greet one another. It is the week after Easter. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. What do you think they were doing the week after Easter? Do you think that they were like, oh, well, I'm glad we got that over. That's pretty cool. We got that one figured out. Now I'm back to my job. Well, I tell you what, Jesus, when he appeared to them, gave them an instruction. It says this in John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week. Ah, first day of the week. Here we are. When the disciples were together and the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, this is the morning of the resurrection. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. And then he gives them a command. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Set a fire down in my soul. Lord, I want to be in your presence. I, amen. It was great. Becca, thanks for leading. Oz, thanks for praying. Great worship team. Appreciate the time. But guess what? It's not just for us to soak in and enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them the Holy Spirit, His very Spirit, for the purpose of what? Sending them. As the Father has sent me from heavens to the earth, I am now sending you to go out. And so we, the week after Easter, should be about that which Jesus commissioned his disciples to do. We need to be going. And as we go, we need to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as we looked at last week, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that changes the whole ballgame of life that we're living in. And so they went as witnesses to the resurrection, proclaiming Jesus was the Savior, proclaiming that Jesus was God himself, come in the flesh, died on the cross, rose from the grave. They had a story, a message, the gospel, the good news to tell people. And that if you become a follower of Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you are given life today, and you're given life eternal. It's the Father sent me, so I send you. So what they were doing the week after Easter was they were being sent. And as we're sent, we proclaim Jesus. And we proclaim Jesus as the answer. But here's the challenge. If we're proclaiming Jesus as the answer, then what is the question? And if Jesus Christ is the answer, then he must be shown to have a answer for the question that you're dealing with today. What's the question you're dealing with today? What's the question that your friend, your family member is dealing with today? You see, we should never be fearful of taking on the questions of our world and the questions of other people. 
For we have the answer. The answer is in Christ. Now you say, well, that's very nice to say in a, a church environment. That's what you're supposed to say, pastor, is Jesus is the answer. But the reality is when you get out there, that seems real simplistic. That seems a little bit, it's intimidating to come up with that answer. Jesus, you know this guy that used to live? You're entering into a classroom for the next few weeks. A classroom of looking at life's biggest questions. And we are going to see in these four weeks how Jesus Christ, especially in light of the resurrection, really does come and bring and provides context and answer to the largest questions that we have. The questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. If you were put on the spot this week, maybe you were put on the spot this last week, about being able to give a reasonable defense or an answer for the faith, the hope that lies within you, how good are you at it? How good are you with being able to draw back and point people ultimately to God? Now, you need to understand in this that I believe that God is the author of all truth. And if God is the author of all truth, then when we step into the large questions of life, we are ultimately going to frame them in a God worldview and an understanding of him. But many times when you begin answering the questions of people, even maybe your questions here today, sometimes you just can't begin with God because you cannot assume God. You cannot assume God in our world. I posture this to you that your worldview makes a world of difference in everyday life. Your worldview makes a world of difference in everyday life. And we gave reference to it last week. What is a worldview? The worldview is the lens through which you look. I put on a different set of glasses today than I normally put on. I don't know why. I just wanted to change up. Now, these glasses have the same type of lens in them that my other glasses have, but they have different frames. But I could have got glasses that have different lenses, glasses that maybe are shaded, glasses that are more powerful, weaker, whatever it may be. All of us put on a set of lenses through which we see life every day. And we live our life out according to how we believe life exists. So your worldview, the frame which you have around all of life, determines how you live life out every day and how you and I respond to the issues, the challenges, the crises, the opportunities that come our way. Your worldview makes a world of difference in your everyday life. But for a lot of people, their worldview does not have the context of God in it. And so you and I have to begin with where they are. And so with the questions that we're going to look at in these weeks... Though God is the ultimate truth and we're pointing people to God, we're pointing people to Jesus, the Son of God, God himself as the answer, having an A answer for the issues and the needs in life, you need to understand that many times we have to start where people are and not assume for them just to come in our world. Because it's offensive not to entertain the place of which, where somebody else is at. Well, you just need to believe. You're, you need to be like me. Well, that's not going to get you very far. You listen, you learn, you ask questions, and you begin to walk them into right kind of thinking so that they themselves can discover God. Because if Jesus is the answer, then we should just chill, in part, 
Because if they're truly seekers, and if you're a seeker here this morning and you don't know God in your life, then you begin to walk towards trying to find answers. You will find ultimate truth and answer in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're just sort of playing a game and smoke screens and you want to continue just to live a selfish life and be indifferent and be sort of belligerent at times, I, I, don't, I don't you know, know that you're going to land there. But if you're being honest and sincere... Scriptures say, he who seeks me will find me, referring to God. And so, but you had to seek with a whole heart. And so everybody around us, as we are sent with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the week after Easter, we are moving into a mission field each and every day to be able to draw people to Jesus Christ. But we have to do it in a way that respects their personhood and has integrity and is done with humility. So we enter this classroom to begin trying to walk through some of the big questions that are referenced there. But the challenge is in our worldview today as we look around that our worldview is a mess in our culture, is it not? I want to read for you a couple quotes that are contrasting related to a worldview and the exchange of things. The first comes from Malcolm Muggeridge, and Malcolm Muggeridge was a, uh, a famous person in England, and he... Uh, I was involved in the media. He was a professor at Edinburgh, I mean a chaplain there, and ended up resigning. He ended up um, moving from an atheistic position to late in life, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Very intelligent, smart person, and has he articulated things. And he described in the 70s, this is in the 70s, what would he say today if he was still alive? the culture in which we live, and that at that time, 20th century man had decided to abolish himself. He says this, So the final conclusion would surely be that whereas other civilizations have been brought down by attacks of barbarians from without, ours had the unique distinction of training its own destroyers at its own educational institutions and then providing them with facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did the Western man decide to abolish himself, creating his own boredom out of his own affluence, his own vulnerability out of his own strength, his own impotence out of his own erotomania, himself blowing the trumpet that brought the walls of his own city tumbling down, and having convinced himself that he was too numerous, labored with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer." until at last, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he killed over a weary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. You step back and you look at culture today, you know there's a, uh, not a lot of people that would have a biblical worldview. In fact, uh, George Barna says that only 9% of today's population in the United States has a biblical worldview, which would believe in God, believe in Jesus Christ, believe in Satan, believe in salvation, believe in the afterlife, in the context of a biblical worldview. Only 9% of people. And so we're seeing in our generations, and think about it from the 70s, how it continues to sort of go down this slide, that people in a worldview without God and Christ at the center of it, it moves to being a weary old brontosaurus that kills over and dies from extinction. And you see all different kinds of ways in which not only culture and society fall, but people around you are broken and fallen. And why is there brokenness in your relationships? Why is there brokenness in your life? Well, you've got to come back and say, well, where's my worldview? 
What am I thinking? In the 1960s, Frederick Nietzsche came out with the God is dead. In fact, it was on the Time magazine. Is God dead? And so um, maybe the result of some of the drift of culture is according to that. And it's just not the atheistic kind of thinking. It's the Eastern influence and other kinds of worldviews. Today we're dealing a lot with the worldview of Islam. There are worldviews all over the place. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody looks through a lens with a certain set of beliefs. I mean, a two-year-old thinks he's at the center of the world, right? That's not true. We learn that pretty quick. What's your worldview? Your worldview is going to make a world of difference in your everyday life and the everyday life of other people. So uh, Malcolm Muggeridge describes this as sort of the drift of culture and what's happening. I contrast that with Martin Luther King. 1964. He received the Nobel Peace Prize, and this is his acceptance speech in part. He says this, I accept this award today in an abiding faith in America and an audacious faith in the future of mankind. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man, man's present nature, makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. I refuse to accept the idea that man is mere flassum and jetsam in the river of life, unable to influence the upholding of events which surround him. I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway into the hell of a thermonuclear destruction. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. Unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. Now, that's an inspirational speech. And Martin Luther King, I mean, he inspired people. But why? Because he had a worldview that saw that God was in charge, that he had gifted and given mankind the abilities all equally to make the best of opportunity and to be armed with truth and unconditional love. And with that, he moved forward and he changed a very culture. But what is the worldview today and what's your worldview? You see, I'm mindful. You watch some of the same news I watch. You encounter some of the same dispositions with people around you as I encounter. And sometimes we just get discouraged when we go, my goodness, this world, where is it headed? My gosh, what's this workplace coming to? Man, I don't care to hang around those people anymore. You see, we're inundated with the lack of truth, the lack of unconditional love. We're inundated with a culture that is broken time and again. And you and I can get very discouraged. But I think we need to put on the lens of knowing that God does have an answer through Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection, and he is able to change the trajectory of a nation, of a world, and of your life and your family. Your worldview makes a world of difference in everyday life. I put this passage to this particular point, and it comes 
from Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. It's an exhortation from the Apostle Paul. For Christ, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given the fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Don't be taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. What's the lens that you look through? I look through the lens that says, Awakening Church, you and I can be fully alive in Christ and to his mission, and that we can find purpose in being sent forth from Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit to influence a world with the hope that's found through our resurrected Messiah. But we have to be able to give context and we have to endear ourselves to where people are at. The hopelessness that exists today, I believe, is because the worldview in which we're being indoctrinated with, week in and week out, is not sufficient to sustain life. Suicide rates off the charts. Saw this week statistics for military people. Suicide rates drastically increasing. You can get behind the science of all that supposedly. I tell you what, if you have no hope, you get to a place where you say, this is it, I'm done. We need to bring that hope that people can be fully alive in Christ and they too can be a part of the mission that he is doing on this earth until he is to come again. The worldviews that people have, though, there's, I would say there's sort of three main categories. There is the category that, would be a biblical worldview, which is that there is a God. He has created human beings and he has a purpose for them. And that God is a personal God. All right? That is a worldview we accept that uh, is sort of uh, okay in this room. But outside of this room, maybe uh, you encounter that it's not that centric worldview that there is a God. But there's a worldview that says there is no God. And all that exists is just matter. Matter. Naturalism. Then on the other side of a biblical worldview is that that says not only is there there's not a no God, it's that the world is God. Everything is God. It's an Eastern pantheistic kind of worldview. And so you have different religions placed in these different categories. You would have you know, an atheist, a naturalism, secular humanism, all right, you would have on the other end that all is God kind of idea, some of the New Age thinking as well is Hinduism. Then in the middle you would have the theistic religions, which are Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, believes in a God, all right? So you got those buckets to deal with, and so you begin to walk out into understanding the context of your world in some of those categories. But more often than not, the tension really is between, all right, the idea that is there a God or is there not a God? Or the tension, I guess, is uh, that there's some spiritualistic kind of oneness that you can attain uh, by being one with the universe. 
Okay? And you have nuances of all those. I want to present to you just quickly, and I think this is helpful for giving some framework, especially if you want to try to work with an individual with where their worldviews at, um, to talk about how do you evaluate worldviews that someone may have. All right? What do you believe? What are you thinking? That kind of thing. How do you see the world? And uh, this comes from um, RZIM, Ravi Zacharias' International Ministries. And he has what's called, and I, I grew up understanding this, the three, four, five approach to being able to understand uh, a method of analyzing worldviews. The first, the three, there are three tests that a worldview must pass. Whatever you believe, whatever somebody else believes, and everybody believes something. So you just can't say, I don't believe anything. You do believe something. The three tests a worldview must pass is, is it logically consistent? Its teachings cannot be self-contradictory. Okay? The second is empirically adequate. Its teachings must match what we see in reality. And the third, it must be existentially relevant. Its teachings must speak directly to how we live our lives. So if I'm going to test a worldview, if you're going to test the worldview of your friend, let's come back and say, well, is it logically consistent? Is it empirically adequate? And is it relevant for how we live our lives out? So you begin with that category and tier of tests for a worldview. And then the four aspect is the four questions. And these are the four questions that we're framing up uh, this run of uh, Sunday mornings with. The question of origin. Where do the universe and human beings come from? Where do I come from? Meaning, what is the meaning or purpose of life? Morality, how do we know what is right and what is wrong? And how do I define good and evil? And then destiny. What happens to us after we die? Is death the end or did Jesus Christ rise from the grave? And if he did rise from the grave, then uh, there may be a clue for a door to eternity that's found in that. Soren Kierkegaard said this. He says, I've learned to define life backwards and live it forwards. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to see where... It's ending, and then I'm going to turn around and order my life according to where it's ultimately going. So origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, those four questions will be looked at. And then just real quickly, the three, four, and then the five are the five academic disciplines. And this might get a little heady for you, but hang in there. It's always good to go back to college a little bit. That must be employed if you're going to study a worldview. The first is God. Theology, the study of God. Who is God? Does he exist? The second is metaphysics, is the study of reality, what is ultimately real. Then there's epistemology, which is the study of knowledge itself. How do we know things? Epistemology has always been one of those that really starts to make my brain hurt when I dig deep into it. And then ethics is the study of morality, what is morally right and wrong. And then anthropology, the study of humankind, mankind, what does it mean to be a human being? So those would be five disciplines answering the four questions of a worldview that must stand the test of those three items that we mentioned. The three, four, five. So if somebody is serious about trying to understand ultimate reality and get answers, then this is not just so, oh, hey, let's just watch a YouTube video. I'm good to go. No, let's have a serious disciplined study dialogue, interaction, and it's walked through this. And I believe ultimately people will move their way to God. 
because Jesus is the answer. Now, with this, I want to encourage us uh, as we take on the first question. And the first question is the question of origin, that um, we do not um, just lightly um, just park here for just a little bit, but that we could take this and take this on as an assignment almost in the weeks to come. The question of why there is something rather than nothing requires more than a scientific answer. The question of why there is something rather than nothing requires more than a scientific answer. We run into a lot of problems here because science is seen as the the big all kill all. Everything has to be according to science. But do you realize that science does not answer everything? Science can explain causes, but you go back from one cause to the next cause to the next cause, and you move back to uh, the initial cause. But who's going to explain that? Philosophy, theology is another discipline that starts to come into place. Science is not the queen. Theology actually used to be called the queen of the sciences. But we live in a postmodern Western mindset, category, God doesn't necessarily exist. That's only a crutch for you people that are weak. And the belief comes across that we ourselves, all right, are here by mere chance. And that time plus matter plus chance is all that there is. And that we cannot prove anything because you can't prove God exists according to science. There's different disciplines that prove different things. If you're in a court of law and you're accused of being a part of a murder, you can't go out and empirically replicate what had happened at the scene. You are giving testimony witness. There's different kinds of ways, different disciplines come to truth in different ways. And so the question of why there is something rather than nothing requires more than a scientific answer. Did you see this picture this week? This is the picture from the telescope Hubble for our universe. This picture came out this week, and it was a compilation of, I think, eight or nine different images uh, that were taken place that grabbed a hold. There are a half a million stars in that picture. We're 27,000 light years away. This is the Milky Way, our galaxy. We are 27,000 light years away from the center of the Milky Way. Do you know what a light year is? A light year is exact. It's 186,000, I think, 282 miles per second that's how fast light travels if you were to take a journey around the equator the light would travel around the equator in 7.5 seconds all right and we're looking at stars that are millions of light years away you have to explain that you have to explain that. Oh, I don't want to explain that. I got problems today. You know what my problems are, carried today? I praise, but you have to explain that. And not only do you have to explain that, but the atheist person has to explain that. 
The one with an Eastern mindset or a, or a pantheistic mindset, they have to explain it as well as you have to explain how that gets. And you, you may choose to ignore it, but if you don't have a worldview that takes that into context, I think you're missing out on a lot of cool stuff about the world in which we live. And the amazing thing is we can sit here and we can think about that. How can we sit here and think about that? We have a brain to think about that, to try to comprehend. Where did that come from? Where did your brain come from just right now? There is a first cause. It's an argument called the cosmological argument. And I want you to watch this video from RZIM related to the cosmological argument. I think we all agree that for everything to that exists, there must be an antecedent cause to it, whether that's my own birth or the cake that was given to me for my birthday present or, you know, whatever, or the car that I'm driving, which I'm delighted with at the present time. I know that it didn't just show up. It wasn't a result of randomness plus time, that there was a designer, there was a manufacturing process, there was a shipping process. And so it seems to me that cause is intuitive for things that really exist in the, the universe. And we are living in a time where this argument really has gained a lot of momentum today because the accepted view in science today is that the universe, time uh, and energy and, and matter and all that, all came into existence at a finite time in the past. Now, if that is true, they have not always existed. They do point to a reality beyond just the physical, and that reality has to have certain characteristics. It has to be timeless because it created time, uh, immaterial because it created space, extremely powerful if not all-powerful because of the, 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 nature, the, the vastness of the universe, and it also has to be extremely intelligent given the complexity of the universe. So what kind of a cause would this have to be? Now those who used to say the universe was infinite, has always existed, they argue that the, the universe itself is that primary cause. It's always been here. But ever since the Big Bang, we know that the universe hasn't always been here. And we can look at that in different ways. We can look at that through the redshift by, by noticing the Doppler effect in the universe around us. The universe had a beginning. Or we can look at it from a chemical argument using the second law of thermodynamics. We know that things move from a state of order to disorder. In order for the world to have as much order as it has today, it must have had a beginning in the past. If it, were, if it were infinitely old, we would be at a point of infinite disorder. So there's different ways to point out the fact that there was a cause to this universe. And therefore, we have to ask the question, what was that cause? It's a mind of a matter type of thing, yeah. Whether or not it, is it in the beginning was the word, or in the beginning were the particles. And right now, the accepted view in science is that the particles were not in the beginning, they came into existence. And that just leaves the other option, which is a mind. When, when you look at a personal creator like God, then you have an answer that not only answers the question of the beginning of the universe, it then answers all the other questions as well. The best, most coherent explanation that ties in all these facts and ties them in well is that God exists. People used to believe the world was flat. You wouldn't have laughed at them. That was common understanding. It's really just in the last century, really since the 60s, 
People used to believe that we lived in a static state universe. It's now accepted and understood scientific belief that we are living in a universe that is expanding. And if it's expanding, then it had a beginning. The cosmological argument pointing to the first cause, scriptures have an answer for this. It might seem naive to some people, but it's the truth. John 1 verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. The question of why there is something rather than nothing requires more than a scientific answer. You can go all the way back, and I was reading this week. It was sort of expanding my mind again. Someone say, well, this is real simple. It started with a single crystal of salt. I'm going, well, that's interesting. I'll give you that princess, uh, that, that um, um, initial beginning. But where did the single sand of salt come from? If I see a rabbit that appears in front of me, I think to myself, that rabbit came from somewhere. There's a universe. It came from somewhere. The scriptures teach that in the beginning, God God who is timeless. God who is immaterial. God who has all power. That being would have to exist. Eternally exist. The uncaused cause, as they say. Because if somebody caused God, then that person who caused God to come and exist, it would be God. God, by definition, has to be the uncaused cause. He has to be timeless. He's immaterial. He's power, but he's also personable. That God, if you try to get your brain to think about it, said, I'm going to create the universe. And you and I are floating around here on this spinning terrestrial ball because of it. And it's all happening right now. Second thing I posture is this. The universe around us is filled with a stunning order that implies a first cause. Romans 1.20 says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Some of the science that's happening today has to do with the beauty and the intricacies, not only of the outer world, but also the inner world. There's a scientist by the name of Francis Collins and some others that have been studying the inner world. And he was speaking, I believe, at John Hopkins University, and he pulled up a picture of uh, the York Minister of England. This cathedral is in York, in England. You look at this cathedral and you think to yourself, that's a pretty impressive building. How did that building get there, right? Their building got there with some architects, some designers. At the top of that building, though, is an incredibly beautiful stained glass window and showed you he showed a picture of the stained glass window at the top of York Minster in England. And you look at that stained glass and you say, that's incredible. And you think, how, how long did it take for uh, skilled craftsmen and, and, and creative artists kind of people to put all those pieces together to be able to craft that beautiful thing? An incredible design. And then what Francis Collin did, he put up another picture beside that picture. The picture in the York Minister Cathedral is the rose window. Then he put up this picture. What do you think that picture is of? 
that picture is a view along the axis of the DNA of a human being. The double helix. Now why, if that on the left was crafted by an incredible designer, do we not look at that which is on the right and say, there's an incredible designer there as well. But somewhere we shift into another kind of worldview kind of perspective. Well, yeah, but no, not. It's, it's all by chance. It's not by chance. There's an incredible designer, and he is crafting things all around the world, outside, inside, personalities, otherwise. He's the master artist. He is the master dreamer. And he's incredibly creative. I want you to watch this as it relates to the design argument related to God's existence and our origin. The design argument for God's existence argues that there is an implicit and and explicit design, order, purpose in creation that points to a creator, a purposer, a designer. You can't help but look at the existence of life on this earth and how strong the odds are, you know, millions and millions to one, that everything aligned just perfectly. Scientists are telling us today that we that life in this universe is balanced on, on a knife's edge. There are about maybe you think about fifty constants of nature and if they were changed to the slightest degree imaginable life would not be possible and they are independent of each other all these constants and for them to be to have been put together for them to to have uh, come together to allow life seems to cry out for intelligence for, for intelligence behind the whole process how far the earth is from the sun it seems to be just the perfect distance how far is the moon from the earth it seems to be just the perfect distance for life to begin existing where exactly are we in our galaxy our galaxy is the milky way we happen to find ourselves in just the right place for just the right amount of radiation to allow life to exist where are we in our solar system it turns out we're being shielded by an asteroid belt something we would need in order for life to exist gravity has a wide range of 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 constants where it could have been it could have been one way, it could have been an entirely different way. And in fact, if we took the entire range of constants where gravity could have been set, and we turned that, that range into a ruler that expands the length of the universe, and we divide that up in one-inch increments, so we're talking about a ruler, the length of the universe at one-inch increments, gravity is exactly where it needs to be in order for life to exist. If it were one inch one way, everything would explode. If we're one inch the other way, everything would implode. We're talking about gravity could have been anywhere on that on that ruler, this cosmic ruler. And so we have to conclude the best explanation, again, is that mind, which we have good reason to believe through the intelligent design argument, 
is tampering with this dial in order for life to exist. I think the beauty of art, the beauty of, say, the Grand Canyon of the Swiss mountains or the, the, the intricacies of nature, including the way that everything holds together to sustain and validate life or sustain life, are so complex that, to me, I just cannot accept that that could be purely random chance and necessity. I, I really, that takes more faith in my mind than to believe that there's a cosmic intelligence with uh, goodness, power, and grace who designed something in which people made in this image could live. What the intelligent design movement is saying is that we can identify messages in the world around us. We have the ability to say, okay, this message right here has come from an intelligent mind. Then we take what we've learned, we apply it to the world around us, and we say, wow, this world is the product of a mind. This isn't smuggling theism through the back door. This is just a fact. If we can determine that a mind is involved and we see that a mind is involved in the universe around us, that's the conclusion. And we should take our conclusions and run with them, not try to predetermine what our conclusions should be. That's bad science. So not only is teachings from these RZIM leaders, must there be a timeless, immaterial, and all-powerful being there must be an extremely intelligent being with all the design that exists. The more we understand of science in the universe, the more reasonable we discover the explanation of God who made it all this way. With that statement, I read Jeremiah 33.3, and it says this, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Do you know that there's a lot of very high-end scientists that are strong believers, not only in God, but a personal God, Jesus Christ? In fact, in earlier days of science, that was expected. Somewhere along the path, I think there was a divisiveness of heart because for a lot of people, they don't want there to be a God. And so explanations started to go in the way of more of an atheistic, natural, humanistic worldview. Let me just say three more things, and then we're going to close. The first is this. God has put enough into this world to make faith a most reasonable thing, and God has left enough out to make it impossible to live by sheer reason alone. You catch that? Faith in God is not irrational, but it is super-rational. There's enough in this world to make faith the most reasonable thing, and God has left enough out of it to make it impossible to live by reason alone. And the faith element is for a purpose, and it builds our heart. It builds our relationship with God. Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Next, as image bearers of God, we have worth and unique ability to reason Love, communicate, and determine right and wrong. If you were to go back to Genesis and the creation story, and there's much debate concerning the creation story as to is it a literal seven day, uh, six days plus seventh day rest? Is there a young earth? Is there an old earth? There's a lot of debate in that. The personal feeling is it's a very old earth and that the seasons of God's creation are referenced as days. Could God have created the world in six days? You bet. He's God. I have no problem with that. But when you try to align and think through 
how things were created or how we could see a star a million light years away, that means it took a million light years for that star to get here for me to see, right? That there is an old earth, but God took seasons and he created and developed the world in which we know it to be today. But it says in Genesis 1, this verse that captures the heart of him then creating human beings. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. When God chose to create mankind out of the dust of the earth, and he created Adam, and then he took a rib out of Adam's side and created Eve. When God created Adam and Eve, he made them in his very image. We are made in the image of God. We are not like God. We are not one with God. We are not the same as God, but we are made in his image. We are stamped with his eternal beauty and design and ability and power to have free will. And you and I are able to see tremendous worth and the value of every human being here today. No matter if it's been a good week, bad week, you feel like dirt, you feel like you're on top of the world. God created you, and you have worth and value. And every other person needs to see every other person in such a manner. And we have the ability to reason, love, and communicate and determine right and wrong. And so I position this with you as we close. How does your worldview make a world of difference in your everyday life and in the life of others made in God's image? Jesus answered this one. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. We live in an incredible universe. We are blessed to have an incredible creator. And we were chosen to have that creator through his son, Jesus Christ, live within us and for us to live for him. Life comes together when the God of the universe becomes the Lord of our life. Is he your Lord? Are you following him today? Are you owning up to the beauty of being made in his image? Broken and sinful as we are, he came to forgive us of our sins. And we move forward if we follow him into a life of richness and fullness and mission. And then, on that mission, we do all kinds of things as God leads us to show the value and the worth of those who are around us. This is the world in which we live. It's not by mere chance. We don't have to roll our way to being a brontosaurus that rolls over and is extinct as a society. But it comes back to our worldview. And our worldview makes a world of difference. Is it making a difference in your life? Let's pray.